Welcome to Pulse of the Caribbean Caribbean News Roundup. Here's a look at some of our Caribbean headlines for today. Haiti presidential assassination suspect reportedly visited current prime minister. U.S. Virgin Islands government files objection to transfer of refinery operating agreement to West Indies Petroleum. ExxonMobil races ahead for another multi-million dollar contract in Guyana. Puerto Rico bond rises as judge signals approval of modified debt plan. British Virgin Islands poised to continue economic relations with Asian region. And Trinidad anticipates benefits from U-19 World Cup. These and other stories on today's Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup for Wednesday, January 12th. We start a report today in Haiti. The St. Kitts Nevis Observer via the Daily Telegraph reports that the Prime Minister of Haiti reportedly maintained contact with a key suspect after the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Prime Minister Ariel Henry was connected to former justice official Joseph Felix Badio, who is suspected of involvement in organizing the attack that killed President Moise on July 7th, the New York Times reported. Mr. Badio visited Mr. Henry's official resident twice at night, about four months later, while he was being sought by police, two Haitian officials told the newspaper. Phone records also show Mr. Henry and Mr. Badio spent seven minutes talking in two phone calls the day after the assassination, the newspaper reported. A spokesman for the prime minister told the newspaper he did not speak to Mr. Badio following the assassination. The spokesman said the prime minister had no relation with Mr. Badio. A suspect in the investigation, Rodolphe Jarre, a Haitian businessman, told the New York Times that Mr. Badio had described Mr. Henry 72 as his good friend, who he had full control of. According to the report, Mr. Badio contacted Mr. Henry to help him escape after the assassination, and Mr. Henry said he would make some calls. Haitian officials involved in the investigation told the New York Times Mr. Henry would currently be a suspect if he had not been head of government. Phone calls between Mr. Henry and Mr. Badio were first disclosed in September by a Haitian prosecutor who was later fired. A spokesman for Mr. Henry said the prosecutor was fired for pursuing a political agenda. Haiti's Senate reconvened on Monday for the first time in a year as it prepares for elections following the assassination. The elections were originally scheduled for last year, but they were delayed by the pandemic, a spike in gang violence and the killing of Mr. Moise. Last week, Mr. Henry said he was targeted in an assassination attempt during recent National Day celebrations. Sinkitz Nevis Observer also reports via Reuters that the outgoing leader of the Haitian Senate on Monday said he would continue to lead sessions despite his term in office expiring amid continued weakening of the state institution following last year's assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Joseph Lambert, who led the Senate for one year, said Haiti must hold elections in 2022 to restore state 
state institutions whose legitimacy is increasingly in question. We're living in a vacuum with no constituted power. Everything has become illegal, Lambert told reporters. In any case, 2022 will be an election year. Haiti was supposed to hold elections in 2020 to form a new legislature, but the vote was suspended due to disputes about the legitimacy of the Elections Council. Prime Minister Ariel Henry took office following Moise's murder on promises to promptly hold elections, but that vote was also suspended after an August earthquake and no new date has been set. The country remains without an election council. Our priority is elections, said a spokesman for the prime minister's office when asked about Lambert's comments. We need to create the elections council first to have credible, fair and clean elections. The Virgin Islands Consortium reports that the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands on Tuesday filed a limited objection against the transfer of the U.S. Virgin Islands operating agreement from Lime Tree Bay to West Indies Petroleum ahead of the January 21st deadline to complete the auction sale to West Indies Petroleum and its partner, Port Hamilton Refining and Transportation. The government's objection is based on what it said was language not included in a notice of designation of assumption and assignment of the executory contract filed by Lime Tree Bay Refinery that designated the U.S. Virgin Islands operating agreement dated July 2018 to West Indies Petroleum and Port Hamilton Refining. The objection reads, the notice of designated contracts did not list a cure claim for the U.S. Virgin Islands operating agreement, contends the Virgin Islands government. Pursuing to the terms of the U.S. Virgin Islands operating agreement, there is currently due and owing $7,534,247 to cure defaults under the U.S. Virgin Islands operating agreement. The government says the $7.5 million must be paid before Lime Tree Bay can get into any agreements related to assumption of contract in order for the debtors Lime Tree Bay refinery to assume and assign any contracts. They must, among other things, promptly cure all defaults, the VI government said in its filing. As of the date of the filing, the parties have not reached an amicable resolution, but continue to work towards that goal, the Virgin Islands government stated in its Tuesday filing. The U.S. Virgin Islands government says it is owed $2.5 million per quarter for three quarters of 2021, with one payment dated June 30, 2021, in default. The U.S. Bankruptcy Court of the Southern District of Texas, Judge David Jones, approved the auction sale of Lime Tree Bay Refinery to West Indies Petroleum in December. In related news, the Virgin Islands Consortium also reports that Lime Tree Bay Terminals announced late Tuesday that it has completed additional financing transactions in connection with the financing arrangement announced on August 2, 2021. The terminal said existing investors, including a group of its term loan lenders, have upsized their capital investment by $55 million, bringing the total amount of capital provided under 
under new financing arrangements since August 2021 to $105 million. This enhancement to the financing arrangement first announced in August 2021 provides the company with the capital needed for success as we enhance our capabilities and invest in our world-class facilities here in St. Croix, said Jeffrey Rinker, Lime Tree Bay Terminal's CEO. We are very encouraged by the strong vote of confidence from our investors in our workforce and our business plan. The company said that over the past six months, it has repositioned its business to be independent of Lime Tree Bay refining, which suspended operations and continues to operate without interruption. Progress has been made in attracting new customers to the terminal and securing new contracts, Mr. Rinker said. We expect significant opportunity for more recontracting, operational efficiencies, and growth in the year ahead. Crowder News reports that less than a week ago, the government of Guyana issued a tender inviting qualified consultancy firms to submit their technical and financial proposals to review the field development plan for ExxonMobil's $9 billion U.S. dollar yellowtail project. But before the government could even have an opportunity to examine the applications received or provided, an environmental permit for the project, ExxonMobil is moving ahead with the award of a multi-million dollar contract to ensure its 2025 startup timeline is not derailed for any reason. On Tuesday, Italian contractor Sapin announced that it won a contract from Exo Exploration and Production Guyana Limited, a subsidiary of ExxonMobil, for the Yellowtail development project. Sapin said the contract relates to the engineering procurement, construction, and installation of the subsea umbilicals, risers, and flow lines. Further to this, the company said Sapen flagship vessel FDS-2 will conduct the offshore operations, while Sapen refabrication facility in Guyana will build deep water structural elements. Crider News previously reported that development costs for the Yellowtail project are poised to exceed U.S. $9 billion or Guyana $1.8 trillion. ExxonMobil said the costs are expected to be higher since there would be a greater number of development wells and associated drilling costs when compared to its prior project, which also costs Guyana $1.8 trillion. Despite the astronomical cost, Exxon believes that the project should be supported as it would generate benefits for the citizens of Guyana in several ways, which would otherwise not be there in the absence of the project. The company said these benefits include revenue sharing with the government of Guyana and stressed that the type and extent of the benefits associated with revenue sharing will depend on how decision makers in the government decides to prioritize and allocate funding for future programs, which is unknown to the company and outside the scope of the environmental impact assessment. 
According to the project document, Yellowtail will consist of approximately 41 to 67 development wells. The floating production, storage and offloading vessels will be designed to produce up to 250,000 barrels of oil per day. The initial production is expected to begin by the end of 2025 to early 2026, with operations continuing for at least 20 years. Bloomberg reports that prices on some of Puerto Rico's bonds increased after the judge overseeing the island's bankruptcy signal she may confirm a debt restructuring plan soon. U.S. District Court Judge Laura Taylor Swain late Monday directed the island's financial oversight board to revise its debt restructuring deal by Friday and said she plans to confirm that workout plan soon after. If Swain were to approve the debt restructuring plan, it would mean Puerto Rico's bankruptcy, the largest ever in the $4 trillion municipal bond market, would finally be winding down. General obligations with the 8% coupon and maturing in 2035 traded on Tuesday at an average of 90.1 cents on the dollar, up from 89.3 cents on Monday, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. The Oversight Board is reviewing Swain's order and intends to file the revised debt plan by Friday. Matthias Riker, spokesperson for the board, said in a statement on Monday following Swain's order. The restructuring deal would reduce $33 billion of debt and other obligations, including cutting $22 billion of bonds to $7.4 billion. It would ease Puerto Rico's annual debt service payments and establish reserve trust from its broke pension system, which owes current and future retirees an estimated $55 billion. Swain's order included a 149-page findings of fact and conclusions of the law and a 93-page confirmation order for the plan of adjustment that the court is prepared to file promptly once the board submits its revised debt plan. BVINews.com reports that the British Virgin Islands is poised to continue meaningful economic engagement with the Asian Pacific region in the new financial year. According to a press release by the government, of the British Virgin Islands, the territory continues to have successful engagement with the Asia's financial markets and regional partners. The efforts are led by the British Virgin Islands Regional Government Office in Hong Kong. Throughout 2021, the territory built on its 30-year relationship in finance and financial services through ongoing stakeholder engagement in the form of varying conferences and forums, the press release said. The territory was represented at the Ford Belt and Road Conference hosted by the Law Society of Hong Kong. BVI financial products have featured in China's Belt and Road Initiative in tandem with Hong Kong and Singapore entities. The Law Society's discussion centered on the role of regional and international law in supporting the ongoing execution and expansion of the program. The British Virgin Islands explored how its product aligned with Hong Kong and Singapore supported the legal foundations of the program via BVI's access to Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court and UK Privy Council. The Hong Kong office also participated in the third installment of the China-United States Conference. 
The conference focused primarily on how the dynamics of China-U.S. relations impact the financial markets, services, banking, and international business of the region. According to the government, the discussions provided clarity on strategies for greater expansion of the BVI's financial services offerings in the Asia-Pacific region. The final meeting of the territory participated in 2021 was the Shenzhen World Innovative Cities Forum, held in mainland China and hosted by the Foreign Affairs Office of the Shenzhen Municipal Government and the Shenzhen Foundation for International Exchange and Cooperation. The forum hosts representatives from 50 institutions and organizations from 18 countries across the world. The main discussion surrounded the sustainable development of modern cities. Representatives from the British Virgin Islands were able to share their experiences in developing the National Sustainable Development Plan in collaboration with the United Nations Development Plan and the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America. And the Caribbean. The Organization of Eastern Caribbean States (OECS) Director General Dr. Didikas Jules attended the meeting of the Foreign Ministers of Community of Latin America and Caribbean States on Friday, January 7, 2022, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Among the main items on the agenda were the presentation. Of the achievements of the outgoing pro tempore presidency held by Mexico during the period of 2020 to 2021, and the transfer of the presidency to Argentina. In his address to the meeting, Dr. Jules expressed appreciation for the assistance provided to the OACS region by members of the Community of Latin America and Caribbean States body in the region's fight against COVID-19 pandemic. We are all. Also, duty bound to express our deepest appreciation to our sister states in the hemisphere who have demonstrated their solidarity with us in this difficult period, and in particular to the governments of Cuba, Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil for their unfailing and material support with pandemic supplies to the OECS. Our solidarity with community of Latin America and Caribbean state member states in their respect for their national. Sovereignty remains unshakable and non-negotiable. Dr. Jules highlighted the necessity, at a political level, to agree on a rationalization and more effective coordination of the regional infrastructures to allow community of Latin America and Caribbean states to be more focused and effective. Notwithstanding the range of integrated projects for us in the OECS, community of Latin America and Caribbean states. Is the best hemispheric vehicle for establishing this convergence. The OECS Director General expressed the OECS's full support and commitment to the 15-point agenda proposed by Argentina, and within these proposals, highlighted those of greatest urgency to the OECS. These included post-COVID inclusion economic restructure. The healthcare strategy, comprehensive disaster risk management, education transformation, environmental action, and climate change, food security, enhance regional connectivity. And digital transformation. Foreign ministers from Antigua and Barbuda, Grenada, Saint Lucia, and Saint Vincent and the Grenadines were also present at the meeting.
Trinidad and Tobago Newsday reports that organizers from the Sports Company of Trinidad and Tobago, Sport, are confident that Trinidad and Tobago will benefit from hosting matches of the International Cricket Council Under-19 Cricket World Cup scheduled for January 14 to February 5th. During a virtual media conference on Tuesday hosted by Sport Chairman Douglas Camacho said, we wouldn't be able to have spectators at attendance. While this is a downer for some, I don't think this will impact upon the quality on the tournament itself or on the organization that has been put in place. ICC head of events Chris Tetley also touched on the issue of the absence of spectators at Trinidad venues. It is always a bit disappointing when you can't have fans at the stadium, Tetley said. The reason for that are very well understood. As it stands, only Trinidad and Tobago, we wouldn't be able to have fans. Within other countries, their regulations are slightly different. Curtis Rudd, CEO of Tourism Trinidad Limited, also spoke at the virtual presser. Despite being conducted in a bubble with no spectators due to the general anxiety and fears of COVID-19, there are economic benefits to be derived from the hosting of the World Cup, such as revenue generation from hotel accommodations, transportation services, food and beverages, television coverage, advertising, health and medical services, Rudd said. Matches will be contested in Trinidad at Queen's Park Oval, Brian Laura Cricket Academy, and Diego Martin Sporting Complex, as well as in Sinkitz, Antigua, and Guyana. In related news, Sportsmax reports that Antigua and Barbuda Minister of Sports, Daryl Matthew, insists that the country's preparation to host matches for the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup remains on track despite concerns being raised in recent weeks. The main venues that will be used are the Coolidge Cricket Ground and the Sir Vivian Richards Stadium. But there have been questions asked about the state of some of the practice grounds with the tournament set to bowl off on January 14. Two of the venues of concern are the Libertera Sports Club and the Police Recreation Ground. I just want to assure the public of Antigua and Barbuda that all the venues will be ready. We're almost there in terms of our readiness to host what is probably Probably the largest international cricket event on our shores, and the nation will be proud, Matthew told the Antigua Observer. We're actually hosting the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the finals for the Under-19 World Cup, and immediately following that, we will be hosting the Test Series with England, the Richard Botham Series, and so we are hosting a four-day warm-up match, and then go right into the first test. So for the next eight to ten weeks, we should be having a substantial amount of cricket here in Antigua and Barbuda. Antigua has been earmarked to host the Super League quarterfinals, semifinals, in addition to the third, fifth, and seventh place playoffs. 
And finally, the NASA Guardian reports that Delta is planning to return to Marsh Harbor Abaco this summer after an almost three-year hiatus, according to an article on the airline's news website, simplyfly.com. The airline dropped the route after Hurricane Dorian devastated the island in 2019 and hasn't returned since completing humanitarian flights to the island. According to simplyfly.com, Delta also stopped servicing Grand Bahama at the time and no plans are mentioned for a return to that island. The article states flights will resume on June 6 and operate five times per week. No flights will operate on Wednesdays and Fridays. Delta will decrease flights to three weekly operations in September and October before bringing them back to five-week operations from November. The site explains that the flights will run round-trip from Delta Hubs at the Hartfield-Jackson Atlanta, Georgia International Airport. It added the Delta flight will also operate daily flights to Exuma in May, eventually stepping the frequency down to five flights in June, July, and August. This has been your Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup for Wednesday, January 12th. I'm Keisha Wallace, thanking you for choosing Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup as your source for Caribbean-centered news right here, Monday through Friday. Be sure to spread the word to family, friends, and associates. For more Caribbean news stories and information, visit us online at pulseofthecaribbean.com and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, now Meadow.